Welcome to season three of Sadie's Divorced and Happy Podcast, where I talk about life after divorce with a playful, fresh, out-of-the-box perspective. Every episode includes burning questions, spicy conversations, and tips to happiness. Are you ready to turn your setback into a comeback? Then join me on today's episode. It's time to get started on your new beginning. I am so excited for you to be part of episode 86 today. I know 86 of Sadie's Divorced and Happy. It is season three, and we are focusing this season on the comeback after divorce. The guests this season, they are bringing it. They are bringing fun, humorous, inspiring, gritty stories about life after divorce and their personal comeback. And I am excited for you to meet today's guest as well. But before I introduce her, I have to ask a burning question. What is the biggest risk you've taken since your divorce? I'm talking bold move, like something daringly different that you did not do prior to your divorce, because I think divorce is like the ideal catalyst to try new things, right? To do things a different way, to take those risks. And that's what is so special about today's guest, author Candace Walsh. After her divorce, she was bold and brave and came out and that decision changed her life for the better. I've had a few exchanges with Candace prior to this conversation that we're about to have, and she is excited to share her story with you today, how how coming out has allowed her, well, for one, to stop turning a blind eye to herself. It's also helped her find her voice. She has written and edited four books since her divorce, which is incredible, and it also has allowed her to discover what true intimacy is really like with her wife, Laura. Just saying that gives me the tingles. It gives me all the good feels over here in St. Paul, Minnesota. I hope it gives them to you as well. As you can tell, I'm really curious about Candace's story and how her brave journey towards discovery brought her more happiness and what happiness you know, means to her now. And I don't know what brought you to this episode today. Maybe you're just one of my loyal listeners. I love you so much. Thank you for your support. Or maybe you've come out since your divorce and you're wanting to hear Candace's story. Maybe one of your children has come out or transitioned since divorce, or perhaps you just want to be you know, a better ally to the GLBTQ community. Maybe you're ready to make another bold move in your life and you're just needing some inspiration. Well, regardless, I just know that this conversation with Candace today And hearing her story, it's going to give you great support. So let's get this powerful, delicious, gritty chat started with some burning questions. Burning questions. Let's turn up the heat for 60 seconds. Well, I am so excited to turn up the heat with my delicious guest, Candice Walsh. I have been Waiting for this wonderful conversation with you today. Thank you so much for being part of this episode. Thank you. All right. She's ready. She's in Ohio, ready for these burning questions. Okay. 60 seconds are on the clock, and these questions have been tailored just for you, Candace. What was the last movie that made you laugh? Um, senior year. Do you have a favorite magazine you love to write for? I'd love to write for The Rumpus. During your divorce, did you have a favorite curse word that you said often? Fuck. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was mine too. (laughs) Who's your favorite poet? I love Marianne Moore. Do you like licking the spoon after baking? Yes. Yes. At what age did you realize that you really liked Jane and not John? 34. What is a skill you take deep pride in? Writing. Would you consider ever writing an erotic novel? Definitely. What makes you, Candace, feel delicious? Taking a bath in a really deep um, soaking tub. 
What's the best word to describe the life of a writer? Zoom writing dates. <laughs> Whose cookbooks do you have more of, Betty Crocker or Martha Stewart? Martha Stewart, sad to say. <laughs> <laughs> and coming out after divorce allowed you to... Breathe. I am excited to breathe and learn and uh, have a really heart to heart with you today. I have lots of questions and I'm going to start with this one. Did you leave your marriage due to your sexual orientation or did you come out after your marriage? I would say that our marriage, my ex-husband's and my marriage was already foundering. Um, we both got married to, I think, create a family based on what we didn't have. And that was not sustainable without doing a heck of a lot of work therapy that we weren't doing at the time so um so we're super good friends to this day and uh I think that I had a crush on I fell in love with a woman and that was the catalyst that really kind of allowed me to push past all the fears and sadnesses of divorce I think that it it was like a simultaneous understanding that we really weren't we really weren't meant to to make each other happy for the long term and and then I also I needed to step into my true identity How long had you been married About 6 years About 6 years So were yeah. you married later in life I got married when I was about 28 28 so when you're yeah. Mid 30s, you fell in love with a woman. Yeah, 34. Did that's that, right. Did that surprise you? I had. I was sort of raised to be confused about being not straight. For instance, Seventeen magazine had an advice column, and I remember a girl writing in and saying, "I had this sexy dream about my best friend. Does that mean I'm gay?" And the answer was, "Of course not. People have weird dreams all the time." And also, identity. It reminds me of like. Identity was so much more binary at that point. Right. And when I was in college in the early 90s, it was like, if I'm not so convinced that I'm such a lesbian, that I'm not a lesbian. You know what I mean? I do. Just like, just like people were like vegetarians or vegans and, and it was all or nothing. It was like, if you had a bite of piece of bacon, then you had fallen off the wagon. You were no longer <laughs> a vegan. Don't tell folks that PETA, you know, like everything was so rigid in my experience of it. I think on like a systemic level that there was so much in society, like kind of nudging me against claiming that, you know, about myself. And also I came from an evangelical Christian background and I had a lot of insecure attachment with my parents and I didn't feel like I could rock the boat. And I was in oh, my- Oh, I know. I'm a daughter of a minister. So I get yeah, it, Candace. Yeah, you got it. I do. I was going to mm -hmm. ask you about how religion might've mm -hmm. impacted you sure. in your younger years around sexuality, because I know growing up, it just wasn't acceptable. It had to be right. a secret. You couldn't come out. I feel like shame cloaked my ability to take on who I was for many years. And I was very compartmentalized. You know, I can say that my entire sexual life, I always thought about women together, you know, when I was in order to orgasm, you know, but I was able to compartmentalize that and not think about how that might bear on who I was and what I truly wanted. So at age 34, how did you mm -hmm. meet this woman? It was pretty bad. I began therapy with her. She was my therapist and I fell in love with her. So there was transference Sure. And and that's normal enough, but the countertransference was pretty sloppy and it was confusing for me. As a former therapist, yeah, I would agree. <laughs> yeah, I know. Therapists I've spoken with, you know, later just been like aghast. Like it wasn't, nothing was... It's not like we ever kissed, but there was so much flirtation and sexual tension that I was, I really thought that I could have a future with her. And, you know, it was sort of like the carrot on the stick pulling me out of a toxic marriage. So right. I think people probably do that with, with affairs. I mean, it, 
Yeah. You, you had an emotional affair of some sort, it sounds like, mm-hmm. with your therapist to, to I some degree. I felt, felt seen. I felt seen. I feel like I feel like just being in a relationship with even like a liberal man who he was still so much about like what he had to say and having a receptive audience. And what my roles, we fell into some really, you know, the, the roles of being in a heterosexual couple, division of labor, expectations, becoming parents pretty quickly after we got married. All those things contributed to me feeling a race. Of course, being a mother erases a woman in the eyes of society it because really they does. just start seeing the iconic like archetypes and they don't see you. And then the, all the judgment about around being a mother makes you afraid to show up and like say anything. So like, unless it's okay, so much about me wasn't feeling seen and I felt seen in this in this therapeutic relationship and that just made me like really want to show up and like full on. So what happened when you shared this news with your now ex-husband? How did he respond? It was kind of a secret like that piece of it was a secret until he did some snooping. Um, I thought well basically what I when I kind of set him on the trail was when I said, I just hope that, you know, I want you to know that you're not going to have to ever see me with a man. Like the next person I date will probably be a woman. And I thought that would make him feel better. But in fact, it was un- unsettling in other ways that were really profound for him. I did tell him before we, you know, when we first started dating that I, th- I thought it might be bi. I was surprised. I think that he was so unsettled, given that I had told him that I thought I was bi back in like, you know, 1998. From the time you shared that with him to the time you were divorced, who supported did you how did you find support because I know divorce going through a divorce it's a real isolating time it's overwhelming you don't have the energy to tell everybody in your life hey I'm getting divorced you can't I just wanted to have my world be really small when I was going mm-hmm. through my mm-hmm. divorce well you were going through that also you were coming out so who, who supported yeah, you I had so much support almost about 98% of our friends we had a lot of couple friends about 98% of the women just like had several of them had been divorced. Other people just it were closer to me. And so I had, okay, like I had social friends. I mean, people who were, people who flaked off were never really my friends in the first place. Luckily I had enough like, yeah, real you really know who your friends close. are. When oh you my God. Through. Yeah. It really yeah. becomes crystal clear. Yeah. <laughs> and then there was this one friend who kept on telling other people she hadn't called me and she felt so bad about it. I'm like, okay, I've heard this from five people. <laughs> like, she make really a felt bad, Candace. Wink, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, I had the social friends, I had work friends who were really had been through similar things, um, very close and supportive. And also the coolest thing I think about um, coming out while you're getting divorced is that I went on, you know, match.com and curve. And I felt like in the past, if I did wanted to get date with a guy and it didn't feel like a good, a good click or whatever, that we were done, like we weren't going to be friends. Gonna be friends. I was just gonna but ask with women, yes. I just was cultivating a circle of friends, friends as I was dating because I didn't actually like have a romantic connection with anyone on match for a year. And I probably dated about one, about 18 dates and several of them became like really close buddies. And some of them were like, had been out for a long time. So they were kind of like big sister helping me navigate. Others were in the same boat as me. Yeah, it was, it was pretty wonderful socially. I want to ask more about the dating because I know the listeners leaning, you said the word dating women and the listeners like, okay, I'm listening. (laughs) Yeah. But I I do. But before we go to that, I do want to ask you have children, right? Yes, I do. How old were your children during this time? They were three and five. Oh, really young. Yeah, I know. Yeah. How, how, how do they talk to you about this now? They say like, I don't even remember you and dad being together. So it's kind of good to do it when they're young. We had a really, we had 50, 50 uh, co-parenting the whole time. So they, I feel like, got to be closer with their dad than otherwise because, you know, how things are with dad working during the day. And so I think that 
for them, it just is the way it is. You know, they love. It's what they know. Yeah. And they love Laura. And so it's like she's a parent. She's their parent. Right. What Mm -hmm. what would you say to the listener who's maybe in the situation where his or her children are older? They're not young toddlers, young elementary age children. And they're having a lot of questions about this. I would say that you have to be the rock in the river. You're the parent. You're showing them that you don't have, just have to decide who you are when you're 18 or 21 and then stay that way for the rest of your life. That there's a freedom and there's a joy in like claiming your full fate. And that that's the long story. Like that's the sort of overarching truth. And that, yes, there are going to be ugly things possibly said, misunderstandings, judgments, you know, perhaps years of not ideal, maybe conflicts, but you're wired to love your kids and they're wired to love you being authentic, especially perhaps at a time when they're feeling unsure about their identities, I think can be really, really beautiful for, for kids to notice and to witness. I agree. And also no matter whether it's a queer situation or not that, you know, to pretend that things are okay between you and and your husband or your spouse when they're not it gives them a messed up understanding of what love feels like or like looks like you know it's it's not there are many factors that go into whether you know to deciding to divorce and sometimes it has to do with like financial you know maybe perhaps I don't blame anyone for staying in a marriage if they can't sustain themselves financially otherwise. There are things that we have to do like that. We don't all have the the sort of privilege to be like, la-di-da, moving on. But in terms of the the kids and how they're seeing it, it's just to be consistent, honest, and loving, and and, and humble, too. And humble. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to the religion question. I still have have some questions around that because I was raised by a minister. I think getting divorced for my family was hard on them. It was hard on sure. them to have their daughter go through a divorce. They, they took that really to heart. Mm-hmm. Adding the layer of also coming out. I don't, I don't know how they would have responded to that. How did your parents respond? My mom just, she said, weirdly, she was like, I always knew there was that roommate in college. I could tell that you were in love with her. I just hoped that you could be happy enough with a man. Like just- I was just, yeah, um, it's a common, I think it's common that people who believe that being queer is morally wrong would rather have a woman be unhappy and possibly even unsafe with a man that's their partner than to be in a queer relationship or, you know, identifying that way, um, which I think is super sad. But, you know, I she agree. loves, you know, she's been able to really kind of thread a needle of accepting and loving me. You know, she might try to say, love the sinner, hate the sin, which I just refuse to listen to. But she, you know, she was had actually, she had anxiety about meeting Laura, but once she did, she just completely realized how much she loves Laura. And to this day, is always like very fond of Laura, asks about her, remembers her birthday. So she's able to love me and love Laura. And also she has her own beliefs. And I think that, you know, people who are subscribing to Christian or other organized religion beliefs, they, they kind of have to make those bargains and with themselves and the way that they approach combine the paradoxes of their belief system and people they love. And luckily my mom made the right decision when there are so many parents who will become estranged from their children. Abandon them, right? Which is her- horrific. I mean, I don't know what have happened. Would have, I, I definitely suspect that if I had come out as a teenager, that I would have gone straight to conversion camp. So, you know, I think there was some wisdom in, in keeping that very undiscovered in my And my father was just, he kind of, I mean, I I kind of stopped talking to him about these types of things. You know, I I kind of withdrew from him when I was dating women and stuff, because 
I just didn't want to talk, have that conversation at that point. And it was too much pressure for me when I was trying to explore something very delicate. And so I think I told people in my family and then it got back to him. And then he had to act like he didn't know, but that he wanted me to tell him. And it was fine. He, it was so funny though. Cause he was like, all right, just don't, don't do anything serious. Don't get, don't get engaged. Don't get married. And I like already had an engagement ring on my finger. You know, <laughs> I was like, well, this is a phone call. <laughs> you cannot see. <laughs> I'm not ready to talk about this with you yet, I guess. And how many years now has it been since you had that initial conversation with your dad? It was probably 14 years. And how are things now? Great. Yeah, no, we're just part of the family. It's not an issue. Adapting. I, really I think we do adapt. When we love someone, we can adapt to something that we thought maybe we, we couldn't. Right. I think, you know, I don't really know how he feels about it. And I don't think that's necessarily mine to know. You know, all I know is the dad he shows up to be. And I appreciate that that he's been consistent. How have your views on religion changed since you were 34 years old? When I was 34, well, I guess I would just say that I stopped being a Christian my freshman year in in, in college. Um, And then I went through an atheist phase. And then I kind of slowly got into just believing that there are like, there's a whole level levels of spirituality that I can't see with my eyes that I just have to accept. I feel that I've seen a lot of evidence that synchronicity, my dad calls it God incidences, that I can hold space for. I was raised from age six up with like a big spiritual life. And I think that for a long time, it was a void. I, you know, I do feel like I have a spiritual component that, you know, that's integrated inside me and it's just not structured, you know, it's not structured in, in an organized way, or rather I should say it's not like related to organized religion. I just try to meet it where I find it. And I want to connect the dots because I think being creative is a form of spiritual expression. Mm-hmm. It's a higher, a higher level of, of thought in my opinion. And clearly you're an artist, you, you write, you've written a, a cookbook <laughs> about licking the spoon. <laughs> it's, a, it's a memoir with recipes. A memoir with recipes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And also you've written, you've, you've co-edited two books, Dear John, I Love Jane and Greetings from Jane Land. One you co-edited with your wife, Laura. And I have curiosity as also a creative human, like how did coming out oh. enhance your creativity? Before we talk about the books, I want to have you answer that for me. I found my voice, like boom, found my voice because how do you so have you a voice? you not writing before? I was writing, but I was writing in like just sort of, I did a lot of freelance magazine writing when that was actually a viable way to make a living. And it was about having sort of a house voice with the magazine while also having your own flair. And I think I was in a very imitative phase. I think I've always been like an avid reader and writer. So I think I, I certainly have done plenty of work to develop good writing chops but to not actually be coming from a place of authority from within my own like organism, I think that made my writing suffer. And I feel that I, you know, I can really appreciate as somebody who's we're focusing on fiction now, what my characters might be going through when they take risks in ways that I couldn't when I had, you know, I played it, I didn't always play it safe, but I played it unsafe and kind of like rebellious badass ways that didn't have a lot to do with taking like big life risks. So talk to me about these two books that you co-edited. What was the catalyst for that? Um, Yeah. So first I did ask me about my divorce as an anthology and I worked with editor at Seal Press and she was also going through a divorce and she was like, yes, I'm greenlighting this project. And then I, she said, what do you want to do next? And so I said, well, I think I want to do Dear John, I Love Jane because I wanted to be able to read a book like Dear John, I Love Jane when I was going through like my major transfer 
transformation. And she said, oh, that also happened to me, you know, and she spoke with the board and was able to give green light that as well. About five or six years went by and I felt like so, the world had changed so much and like gay, gay marriage became legal. And I just from anecdotal knowledge knew that a lot of the writers in Dear John, I Love Jane had had interesting, you know, next steps in their lives. So I wanted to do a sequel. And so Cleus Press took on Greetings from Jane Land, which has a mixture of new writers and writers like kind of checking into like do a part two on their essays. So that's how that all kind of came together. And as you were reading, first of all, how did you, because the books are collections of essays, mm -hmm. real life stories about, you know, the humor and, and the, the heartache about coming out, leaving a man for a woman. And mm -hmm. how did, first of all, how did you find, how did you recruit these essays? And when you were yeah. reading them, I mean, what was that experience like? I bet that was overwhelming in so many delicious ways. Yeah. So with Dear John, I Love Jane, Laura and I put out a call for submissions on various websites and newsletters and through social media. And, um, and we got 130 submissions and we ended up choosing 27 essays. So it was really great. It was wonderful because I didn't know there was such a huge hunger. Like, it's funny when you're like, hmm, I'm really hungry for this thing. Is it just me? And then when you find out that you're tapping into something that's so huge so much than and you. so needed yes. and that there are so many people I know just because they reached out to me after reading the book and said, oh my gosh, you know, this has, it's opened a lot of, yeah, it's opened a lot of doors in terms of like introducing me to really cool people who, who basically like, I desperately needed this book to exist. Thank you so much for putting it out there. And, you know, I have to thank Laura and Seal Press and all the essayists who were brave enough to share their stories and go through editing with, with us. And you also wrote an essay that's in mm -hmm. Dear John, I Love Jane yes. and, and shared a story. What was that story about, Candice? It was about, um, it was about my own, I kind of told it a little bit when we first started talking in this episode, it was just about like what kept me from really stepping into my queerness in a series of different forms. It had to do with insecurity around whether my parents would still love me. It had to do with confusing messages from society. And and just also like when it, there's that quote, and I'm, I don't, I'm going to paraphrase it and I don't remember who said it, but it's like when the pain of growing or the pain of not growing exceeds like the pain of staying small, like that's when you have to change. And so I think that's a think catalyst that for a lot too. of us who who have gotten divorced. I've never come out, but I imagine it's, it's the same where you just can't be hiding right. anymore. You just you can't, can't be in that sh little space. No. Yeah. No. And it was funny because I, I, I was reading the, from the essay aloud at a reading for the book in Albuquerque at Bookworks. And it was, I was reading it and all of a sudden I was horrified to realize that I was about to ugly cry. Like, Oh, uh, you go, was, you ugly cry. Yeah. You know, what was that I was like just for like, you? Like, yes. How what a release though, to have that ugly cry. Yeah, I think it was like low-key ugly cry, but it felt like, <laughs> it was not what I had chosen to do, but it really brought the audience very close to me in that moment. I'm glad you chose to do that for yourself. It was not a choice. Well, allow it. You, you yeah, did allow yeah. it because you yeah. put yourself in that position exactly, to be that vulnerable. Yeah. So you, That's did, true. you did create space for that. Yeah, you're right. Okay, mind-blowing sex. Here we go. <laughs> I loved reading about how in... Um, these books that that some of the essays were about mind-blowing sex and sure. I know I know after my divorce I had quite the sexual awakening which I've talked about very openly on my podcast and I've had a lot of fun with different episodes sexual renaissances after divorce after coming out I have not mm -hmm. had that type of sexual renaissance you know I've, I've only had sex with men so mm -hmm. what was it like to go from 
having intimacy with a man you'd been with for how many years and to dating and being with women. I mean, I, I have, you know, had the fantasy, I'm not going to lie, Candace, of like, God, if I could just have women. <laughs> anyway, we, a lot of us, we straight ladies, I'll speak for the team. We've had that fantasy. So it's so funny. I actually wrote a Huffington Post article, essay about like what the fantasy that straight women have about what it's like to be a lesbian and why they wish they were queer versus the reality. Oh, I'm sure and it's, it's yeah, super, I, think, us. I, it's, it's, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's worth reading. I guess I would say that, you know, that the sex is fantastic, like just on a anatomical level there is, there are certainly wonderful male lovers out there who are like incredibly devoted to women's pleasure. pleasure. But I think that the whole, like it's, you can think about it, like the erection has like a timeline built in and it's very linear, you know? And I feel like women have to fit themselves in around that, that, that urgency <laughs> situation. Right. Yeah. No. yeah. There's so much wrapped up in like, I think men's need to perform and to perform quote unquote well and how much that they identify with that as being virile and strong or desirable not vulnerable um so i think that that's just like a architectural element of heterosexual sex that i think undermines the pleasure that women can have because when two women get together that's that's not there you can buy it at the store and that's great but it's not gonna like lose its the vibrator just needs maybe more batteries or charging. yeah exactly like right. Candace, thank like, you for it's jumping not gonna melt there. it's not gonna melt unless you maybe use it a little too much and if you do good for you points to you if you're using your vibrator so much it's melting on you but right yeah i mean you don't have that urgency <laughs> customer around. service time yeah <laughs> right the urgency the the timeline the the form of all that i think interferes with the pleasure women can feel because also we're we're raised to be helpers supporters submissive Viewers, um, considerate, put ourselves last. Yes. Also, we're raised to be ashamed of our bodies and of our pleasure and our desire for pleasure. And so, yeah, the patriarch kind of yeah, the really patriarchy impacts our sexual really, experience. Yeah. As, if you're a heterosexual woman, I yeah. Really so I just think the absence of that is just a huge relief. Women do feel familiar with their own bodies. And there's a lot that can transfer over to another woman's body. Although women's bodies can be very different from each other. But I think of it as like run on sentences versus, you know, say a sentence fragments or it, you just, you, you don't know like whether Spoken it's going like to take a, a true half, writer. I love it. I love it. You don't know whether it's going to take 15 minutes or five hours, not take, but end up being that long. It's just very open-ended and there's like a wonderful, there's a wonderful aspect to, to the, the unknown and the surprise and the lack of um, predictability there. It's just, yeah, it's not just about that sort of summit and descent. Now about the emotional awakening. So here's what I, you know, I, I'm really actually really curious about this question. So with men and women, I, I have learned that because of my own insecure attachments, you talked about that earlier in the episode with, with your childhood and all of that, that I have attracted in my life a lot of emotionally unavailable partners. But mm-hmm. Ultimately, it's because I haven't been very emotionally available. And the thing that frustrates me about that, Candace, is that with my girlfriends, like my trusted best girlfriends, I'm very mm-hmm. emotionally available. And so I'm like, God damn it. Like, like <laughs> why can't that just be easier? Like, if I can be emotionally available with my girlfriends, why can't I be more so with men? So it's something I'm, I'm working through, but I have curiosity. So you go from this fractured marriage where I'm going to guess maybe you weren't mm-hmm. as communicative or partners mm-hmm. weren't as emotionally available. And then you move to 
be dating women and they're becoming your friends and you're having these great emotional connections and, and now you have a wife and I just have some curiosity around your emotional awakening since you came out and since your divorce. I think that, you know, for the most part, dating women means that there's going to be more or less, um, there's going to be more openness. Um, I mean, I know that women who are friends of mine who are queer have complained about the ways that toxic masculinity can show up in their partners or the people they're dating, even if they're women. So, you know, because sometimes there's that those roles still assert themselves. So it's not like it's home free, but I've enjoyed, I personally have enjoyed with my wife, just not ever having to wonder like what she's thinking or feeling, you know, of course we have our privacy and we're not intrusive, but I don't have, I remember I spent so much time before I got married, especially wondering what guys were thinking about me. Right. And it meant so much to me if they were thinking about me. And I hoped that I was like caught up in the male gaze or like the male perspective of like trying to see myself through the way they were seeing me. Because, you know, I was, we would have been raised to kind of like imagine ourselves as objects of desire. We want to be picked. Yeah, right. The scarcity thing too. Yeah. Scarcity, yeah. Yeah. And the kind yeah, the concept of like, oh, having like a certain mysterious allure that men love. Right. It's just, you know, it's not intimate. It's not mm. like it's not actually like intimate in the way of knowing someone deeply and feeling right. known, which is such a pleasure. Right. Such a pleasure. That's especially so with friendships, you know, just feeling seen, feeling, you know, without even the, the, the risks of sexual intimacy. I think it can be easier for us to have emotional intimacy. You know, not everything, the egg, all the eggs aren't in that one basket. So I enjoy it very much. I enjoy emotional intimacy with my wife very much. That makes me so happy. I love that. Yeah. yeah. So you, yeah. you, okay. So here's another curious question I have. So I have a lot of male friends now after divorce. It's kind of like a going back in time. Remember those days in high school, Candace, yeah. when you could have like your, your guy squad and, and it was oh, a yeah. date. Yeah. Oh, right. It was so fun. It wasn't dating and you could just hang out and have these great talks and go to the movies and whatever. And I love having that. I love, I love having male friends who I'm not dating. So right. now you have a wife and you also have girl, obviously girlfriends. Mm-hmm. So does that, it, was that kind of an adjustment or not really? Because was I don't there anything think so because that? that was already just um, really clear boundaries and all as well. No jealousy. Yeah. About who you're hanging out more with with a certain friend and sure I think that I had been friends with women non-sexually for like you know from childhood on right. to being age 34 so you're very comfortable with that yeah okay. I was just yeah but I want to I mean, in terms of male friendship though I want to just say that I felt so much more comfortable having male friends after I came out like right? I got it's to like engage with friends. I know it's the best yeah. it's like the safest place you can be in right 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 yeah. it's like I I realized you know that I could have like attractive, intelligent male friends. I might be attracted to them to the extent that I would love to get a hug. Like, okay, I'm good now. I got my hug. Like, it just felt like a brother or benevolent paternal um, presence. I love that. I want to mm-hmm. know how you feel divorce and coming out has taught you more about your own happiness. Well, I think, I mean, I was just thinking about somebody who's coming out right now in the situation. And I, I wanted to tell her, you know, when you do this, you're putting yourself first. And 
everything in our society tells us to put ourselves last as women, or at least not first. But when you put yourself first, so much else falls into place properly. You like give off an energy, I think, that attracts more positive, true things to you. Um, you're showing up. So, so that is one thing that makes me happy, even though it might sound selfish, you know, and it was hard. We, when I actually, the byproduct or side benefit of coming out as I was getting divorced was that I put myself first. That meant that I found my writing voice. It meant that I was really clear on what I didn't like and what I did like for the, probably the first time. It was stop being such a people pleaser. Stop being such a yes person. Right. Right. And so I would say with happiness, being able to not be compartmentalized and to integrate myself that just leads to happiness as a matter of fact it's pretty important to point out right now that i thought i was depressed a depressed person until i came out and actually just coming out lifted so much darkness from me because i was no longer expending so much energy repressing and compartmentalizing and turning a blind eye to my own self i was just going to ask you you know the theme for season 3 is the comeback and you know what you just said right now just sounds like your comeback. You really mm-hmm. have come back to yourself. What, how and else I would showed you answer up. that? Like, you showed yeah, up. it's like I probably was myself when I was like a baby. <laughs> and then I had, you know, a million messages that came to me from my church, my family, my schoolmates, my teachers, media, TV shows, magazines that basically each one pushed me away from myself a little bit. And so I came back around to reclaiming myself. You know, they say I've heard like, you know, maybe the first 10 years of being conscious as like, say, like a young adult, maybe 18 to 28, you're like really, or maybe 16 to 26, you're realizing like what got fucked up in your childhood early on and like right. how, like, and, and then the next 10 is like, you got to figure out how to fix it. That's young you, you know, you can like be resentful about what opportunities you didn't get. And trust me, being a parent. I can see where it's been really good for my relationship with my parents because I see how easy it is not to be perfect as a parent. Absolutely. It's very humbling to be a parent. Yeah. To like, to basically combine that knowledge of like, all right, these are the things that didn't go right. Here's like where it's my, this is my life and I, it's my responsibility to fix it. So that's a lifelong process. And in terms of, you know, it's comebacks, coming back into yourself. Absolutely. And it's just so powerful because, you know, that, that choice, and I'm going to take my power and now come back to myself. I'm going to create the life that I've always on some level known can be mine. And Mm -hmm. now I have this window where I've allowed that to actually, you know, come in, it's kind of creating yeah, that pa- space for it to actually come in. And I think divorce does that. I mean, I'm hearing obviously coming out did that yeah, for the- you, where you create that space to mm-hmm. to come into your life, and it's a yourself. space, and space can be scary, and and it's like it can be lonely and the unknown. We think we've got everything sorted out, and then oh, guess what? It's like a little bit of a do over, which I also think is exciting because I'm a Sagittarius, so. <laughs> <laughs> We get all the do-overs we need, I think. That's right. (laughs) So what are you working on now? Any creative projects? And then how can the listener find, you know, your delicious books? You have at least four of them. I know they're on Amazon. I found them there, but. Thank you. you. I'll let you share that. One of the things that I did as a, you know, comeback was I had, I did not finish my undergraduate degree in the four years that was allotted. Guess what? A lot of people don't, (laughs) but I did not. And I kind of was ashamed. That was another thing that I was ashamed of and compartmentalizing and didn't really face up to. But when I was 40 or so, I I realized that I had to finish my BA because I wanted to get my MFA in creative writing. And, um, So I did that. 
And I, I went to um, Warren Wilson's MFA program for fiction, which was a low residency, which is great for folks who have to work full time and have lives. You know, there's like two residencies a year. So I, be, I had started writing a novel after I finished Licking the Spoon and um, I continue to write that and I'm still working on it now that I'm in a PhD program, which I did right after my MFA. I'm in my, going into my fourth year, but I've also been writing short stories and, and having short stories and poems published, some essays. I'm definitely a cross-genre writer. And so that has been a really wonderful area of growth for me. And so all the books that I have either written or co-edited or edited are available on Amazon and they can be searched for under my name. And they're all in the show notes, listener. So that's a quick way to to see everything you need. And my website um, is runthroughcontently.com and that has links to all my published poems and short stories and so on. Yes, I was admiring those prior to our conversation today. Thank you so much. So yes, Amazon, Powell's, any, you know, local bookstores, libraries, they're all pretty widely available thanks to my wonderful publishers, Seal Press, which is now under Hachette's umbrella and Cleus Press. Well, this conversation has been exactly what I knew it would be. It's been so inspiring and I just feel so much happiness for you and for your beautiful wife, Laura. I am so excited for what lies ahead for you creatively and how you are continuing to just come back to yourself, Candice. So thank you so much for being on the episode today. Thank you for putting this out there for women and folks getting divorced, you're so positive and bubbly and inspiring and encouraging. And I know that that's a gift for like untold people. We need more inspiration all around. So I know this will inspire many who listen to it. So thanks again so much, Candice. Thank you. Okay. After that scrumptious layered chat, you have to tell me, how are you feeling over there? Because I know I'm feeling, I'm feeling a little bi-curious. I'm just going to keep it real. I, I think that Glennon Doyle And Cynthia Nixon and Candace Walsh all have a really good thing going on. So I'm happy for you, ladies. I'm happy for you. I'm feeling a little tingly still. Just going to say it. But I do hope that today's conversation with Candace was a catalyst for you to step more into your own truth and to continue to live that richer human experience after divorce. Because you and Candace and I and everyone who has been through a divorce, we deserve to be living in our truth and living our best life. I know, season three. I'm loving it. It's giving me such a boost, and I trust it's giving you a boost as well. And now it's time to give you another boost by giving you your comeback tip for the week. Say these tips to happiness. Today's comeback tip is all about being true to yourself, being authentic, and owning all the parts of yourself. I just refer to Cynthia Nixon, who played Miranda in the hit TV series, Sex in the City. You'll also remember Carrie Bradshaw, the lead character from Sex in the City. She always had the best quotes, and here's one of them. The most exciting, challenging, and significant relationship of all is the one that you have with yourself. And if you can find someone to love the you that you love, well, that's just fabulous. I could not agree more with that, but I also know that it's challenging to commit to being true to yourself. You know, I'm still learning about you and I I don't know, are you someone who doesn't color inside the lines like Samantha from Sex and the City? Or maybe uh, you aren't into color at all. You prefer black or white or maybe there are no lines in your world. 
sounds kind of fun. The way that you think and worship, create, love, all of that makes you unique. But as you know, and I know, life, life changes people, experiences, circumstances, divorce, all of these things can, can shift you. They can change you. And maybe now what you're wanting, your most authentic self is different than before your divorce. So This week, I want you to write down what does authentic mean to you now, right now in your life, and how are you showing up that way? And maybe by doing this exercise, you'll see that perhaps you're compromising yourself or your true feelings to make others love you or keep you around. It's easy to do. I've been there. But doing that, I know, and you know too, that doing that, you pay a big price emotionally, physically, spiritually. It takes a lot of energy to be taking care of others and making sure that they feel okay and are comfortable. And you sacrifice your authentic self when you do that. So here's a tough question. Are those relationships, are they worth it? And is it fair to to them, the people that you're not showing your authentic self to, to not know that part of you? I think oftentimes we assume we have to take care of others. We have to be so responsible for their well-being and they're not even asking us to do that. I mean, chew on that for a little bit. Have these people in your life asked you to be less than the whole you. And if they have, I mean, my goodness, if they have, then perhaps those people shouldn't be in your circle. And perhaps you want to limit the time and energy that you put into those relationships. By taking these steps, writing this list about what the authentic you is all about, assessing your relationships, who can you really be that way with? Who who do you have a hard time being that way with? All of that is going to get you to being the most authentic person. And as Candace so poignantly shared in her story today, that's where your power is. That's where your your happiness is. That's when you're going to find the deepest type of love, which you deserve. It can be daunting to take these risks to really be who you are, but the payoff is so delicious, right? It's so spicy. It's so fun. So you've got this. And remember, it's all going to lead to your comeback. Thank you so much for joining me on today's episode and be sure to subscribe, rate, and of course, review the podcast. And I want you to be part of this Life After Divorce community by following me on Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, YouTube, and TikTok at Sadie's Divorced and Happy. Be sure to also visit my website, divorcedandhappy.net to download Sadie's Eight Tips to Happiness. You'll also find all of my podcast episodes on my website as well. If you've found value in my podcast, consider being an official sponsor. Email contact at divorcedandhappy.net to learn more about this tasty opportunity. And speaking of tasty, you can also buy me a cup of coffee. It's simple. Just visit buymeacoffee backslash Sadie Marie, and you can buy me a cup or two, and I thank you for your support. I'm your host, Sadie Marie, and I look forward to seeing you next week for another round of content created to kickstart your comeback.